Hey, welcome to the Therapy Thoughts Podcast. This is Tiffany Rowe. I'm a licensed clinical mental health counselor and psychology teacher. I own Mindful Counseling in Orem, Utah, and I'm on a mission to break down mental health stigma. Therapy Thoughts is a podcast all about helping you love yourself and make peace with your mind, body, and food. I'll share some education, tips, interviews, and tools from my clinical experience so you can improve your mental health. Stay tuned as we change the mental health game and talk all about therapy. What is up, my Therapy Thoughts fam? I've missed you so much. It's been two months. We've been uh, busy over here in Therapy Thoughts land, working on all kinds of cool stuff. So we're back on the podcast train. This is season two, and we are kicking it off with a heavy hitter. We got Christy Harrison coming on the podcast today. But before I introduce her a little bit later and we listen to her incredible educational podcast. I just wanted to update you. So season two is happening and we got all kinds of experts and folks in the field coming to teach us about all kinds of things. We are making therapy cool. We are breaking down stigma. We are fighting this outdated mental health shame. Uh, We're talking all about fighting diet culture and intuitive eating. We're talking about loving ourselves and I'm just super stoked to have you along for the ride. Let me tell you something really cool that just happened over here in Orem, Utah, where my practice is. Evelyn Triboli, the co-author of Intuitive Eating, a revolutionary program that works, just flew out and joined me with 400 other like-minded folks at my self-love dance party. We sold out, 400 people, and what we did was dance. We danced hard for self-love, unapologetic self-love, and it was a moving event. This dance party, I hold these dance parties in the name of changing the mental health game. And what I mean by that is I want to create a place and a space that is safe for folks to come and practice self-care and practice self-love and to talk openly about concepts that are typically stigmatized. And so this self-love dance party focused on self-love. It was a movement, I guess, in the literal sense of the word. We were moving our bodies, and it was all about body diversity. It was all about body autonomy, intuitive movement, and everyone was welcome, regardless of gender, sex, sexual orientation, race, age. We had all kinds of folks. It was diverse. And it was really cool to have 400 like-minded people come and just unapologetically practice loving themselves. Evelyn spoke to us and did a Q&A about self-love and intuitive eating and navigating all that nuance. And then we danced hard and people left it all on the dance floor. It was really, really cool. And then I wrapped up the night with some therapy thoughts on self-love. And I wanted to share a little takeaway with you that I was challenging the attendees to consider at what point we socially decided that, you know, self-love means you're selfish. I don't even know what that means. I don't know how we would even quantify that. How is love selfish at all? But the idea that it's okay to love a baby, it's okay to love a little kid. And at one point we expect them to step into their own greatness in their own life, but not love themselves. 
I don't think we would actually say that, but it's like, at what point do we decide that love is selfish and why is it selfish to apply that to ourselves? So I challenge that idea and I challenge that idea again today with you, my mindful fam, my therapy thoughts crew. And let's practice challenging these types of notions that put us into shame and make us feel inadequate and make us feel unlovable. Uh, the self-love party was awesome. There'll be more where that came from this year. You can still grab courses from me over at tiffanyrow.com. We'll be adding more courses to the mix over the next couple months. Now that the dance party is done, we'll have time to do some more projects. Uh, I got more speaking gigs coming up. So if you want to follow along and see what's happening on the podcast, what's happening with my speaking gigs, what's happening with live events, head over to tiffanyrow.com. You can get my courses there as well. And rumor has it that we're going to be relaunching merchandise. That means therapy is cool swag that has been sold out two times over. And we took a break. We're getting geared back up to do a release. So you're going to want to follow along. I now have a newsletter. You can sign up for that. It's free therapy thoughts straight to your inbox. And it includes cool downloadables and free content and coupons to my courses. And so you don't want to miss that. If you love the therapy thoughts podcast, you'll love the free little nuggets I send straight to your inbox. So sign up for the Tiffany no, Tiffany Rowe newsletter over on tiffanyrowe.com. So uh, stay tuned. Check out this podcast with Christy. It's awesome. I'm super excited to introduce today's guest. It is Christy Harrison. The anti-diet registered dietitian, a certified intuitive eating counselor, and she's the host of one of the best podcasts out there in this space, Food Psych. She specializes in helping folks make peace with food and reclaiming their time and energy that they've lost to diet culture. She is changing the game, teaching us all about health at every size and diet culture and wellness culture. She's working on a book that she says will come out in 2020 all about diet culture. She does intuitive eating coaching. She has online courses. And I'm so honored to present this episode with Christy Harrison. Welcome, Christy Harrison. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm so honored for you to be on this podcast. I've been a big fan of Food Psych for so long, and you're such a leader in the field, so appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. It means a lot. So what drew you into the field of dietetics and recovery? It was really my own issues with food. Um, So I... I mean, it's funny because like I never was interested in food or dietetics or nutrition growing up. I was definitely interested in mental health. Um, actually, my mom's a therapist. And for a long time, I thought I would be a therapist as well. I even started um, college as a psychology major and kind of had a winding basically had to, you know, individuate from my mother. And so maybe step away from that was, um, the most important thing for me to do, you know, it's like to have my own career path, but, um, but I, I was always interested in mental health, but I never cared about food really, or, um, you know, had any real issues with food growing up. I was an intuitive eater. I was allowed to stay an intuitive eater because I, you know, had thin privilege and, Fortunately, no one, you know, because of, because I just didn't 
um, fit the mold of what society considers fat or too big or whatever. I was allowed to continue eating intuitively the way I was born, knowing how to do and, um, kind of kept that up until I was 20. And then I gained some weight in college. I was on a study abroad program to Paris and I had gotten this birth control pill that I had not, had never been on before, but my doctor at home was like, Oh, I have like 12 months worth of samples of this. If you want to just take these free samples and then you won't have to worry about getting refills of your birth control while you're over in France. And I was like, yes, sold. I will do that. Um, and so started taking this pill that, that made, had the side effect of weight gain and it was pretty rapid. And I just did not know what was happening because, you know, again, sort of having the privilege of growing up in a thin body where nobody commented on my weight, it was never something that I experienced myself. And so, but of course I, I was steeped in diet culture. I grew up in this culture, like everybody else hearing all these negative messages about body size. And so when I did gain weight and like split my pants and was, you know, not fitting into my clothes anymore, I was like, Oh, I know what to do. I will lose weight. I will go on a diet. You know, that was like in my head from all the years I had spent steeped in diet culture. So, um, fell down this rabbit hole of dieting also pretty quickly morphed into an eating disorder, um, and spent, you know, several years of like, going to the doctors, having all these complications from the eating disorder, doctors not knowing what it was and being like, well, I don't know, you're, you seem healthy, you know, like I sort of fit the quote unquote picture of health because my body wasn't emaciated. I was still in the quote unquote normal BMI range. And so nobody thought there was anything potentially wrong with how I was relating to food or exercise. But of course I was like, very much restricting my food and very much over exercising. Mm-hmm. And for me, my weight was suppressed below where it was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I, you know, that was actually all happening at the end of college and the beginning of my career as a journalist, my first career was as a journalist. And so being obsessed with food as I was, because I wasn't eating enough, I started, um, specializing in food writing and started, you know, developed this whole career, as a food writer and specifically wrote a lot about like food politics and nutrition, got very interested in like Michael Pollan and Eric Schlosser and, you know, these ideas about, um, the food system and organic food and sustainable agriculture and stuff. And that dovetailed very nicely with the disordered eating because Mm -hmm. now it was sort of like something else for my disorder, you know, eating disordered brain to like lock onto, right. It was like, how am I, you know, can I eat clean enough? Basically it was sort of the early days of clean eating, Mm -hmm. um, orthorexia. And so, so that was, you know, how I sort of got into it was like through my own disordered obsession with food. And then luckily how I got out was also sort of spurred at first by food writing. Mm. Um, so, you know, being, exposed to all these people who, you know, a lot of people get attracted to food writing because they have their own issues with food, but there's also a lot of people who just genuinely have an interest in it from like an artistic sort of aesthetic standpoint. Um, and I happened to work at gourmet magazine as an editor for two years. And so was really surrounded by a lot of people who had that like aesthetic appreciation for food and that relationship with food that didn't have anything to do with body size or restriction, but was, you know, really very much about the, enjoyment of food. And so that started to kind of slowly help bring me out of it. Cause I was also like worked really long hours and we, a lot of the editors would like go out to dinner together and 
I'd be called down to the test kitchen and have to taste things that were like mm-hmm. running along, you know, recipes that were going to go along with a story that I was writing or editing or something. So like, I kind of couldn't be weird about it. You know, <laughs> I just had to, <laughs> had to eat. <laughs> and, um, of course in my off time, I was still somewhat disordered, but it was, it, it definitely got better through that process. But then the magazine folded in 2009 and I sort of heard rumblings that that was coming. Like the whole media industry was really sort of suffering a big shakeup in the the wake of the financial crisis of 2008. There were a lot of layoffs. There was a lot of, um, you know, magazines closing and kind of different like restructuring of the business model of, of media. And so I was noticing that was, that was all happening and thinking that was going to be potentially something that could happen to me since I was a more recent hire there than some of the people who'd been there for like 35 years. Um, and so started looking at what else can I do career wise? Like what else, what other skills do I have? Um, do I want to go back to school? I did, I definitely consider going back to school for counseling and therapy, but then I was like, you know, that is going to be a years long proposition with, you know, lots of prerequisites to have to do. And I have been working in food and nutrition for these past, you know, seven years at that point or whatever. Um, and I have this knowledge and sort of awareness and also it's going to be a bunch of prerequisites to have to do, but probably fewer. (laughs) And I'm really interested in food and nutrition because, you know, I was still, definitely a little disordered about food. And in the back of my mind was like, maybe going back to school to be a dietitian will make me, you know, ultimately lose weight and keep it off. Mm -hmm. That was certainly the sort of like undercurrent of my motivation. So yeah, so I went back to school to become a dietitian and that is a place that can be very disordered, that can be very triggering. Mm -hmm. And I had a few triggering experiences for sure in the process of becoming a dietitian, but I also happened to stumble upon the book Intuitive Eating, I think sometime in my second semester. Um, and I had not even, it wasn't even because of a class or anything. I had actually decided to write a book about emotional eating because I was still doing, you know, freelance writing. And the goal was always to write a book and just keep writing and stuff, even as I um, became a dietitian. So I was like researching this book that I never ended up even finishing the book proposal, but I, in that process, discovered the book Intuitive Eating and was like, ah, like, where have you been all my life, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And that plus some really good therapy that I had been in, I had been in therapy for, you know, started out for just kind of like social anxiety stuff and generalized anxiety disorder. But then as I you know, went on with my therapist for a few years and developed trust with her and also started talking to her about like what it was like to be a food writer and then what it was like to be in school as a dietitian, you know, becoming a dietitian. Um, I mentioned enough things about my relationship with food that she was like, okay, let's talk about that. Like, let's get into this disordered eating stuff that's going on for you. And so I had the therapy, you know, support that I needed, the sort of one-on-one support to look at the underlying, um, issues with food that I was having and the control issues that were kind of driving it. Yeah. And then also had the book intuitive eating and was learning more about, um, that philosophy from some of the other research I was doing too. So I think those two things kind of helped really cement my recovery. Yes. I relate so much to that, that role of intuitive eating and helping you and that role of therapy. I think that's true for a lot of folks. What a powerful combo. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it was. I was so, so fortunate to have that, you know, because I think like we've talked about and I know you talk about a lot in your work, it's therapy sometimes stigmatized and definitely in certain cultures and certain families, it's like not even accessible Mm -hmm. and, you know, not even to mention economically too, is inaccessible to a lot of people. So, so yeah, I feel very, very lucky to have had, um, to, you know, just had it not be a thing to go to therapy. Yeah. And you've, so you're on board with that and you've, you've soared in, you know, this dietetics community and being such a leader. What, what led you to kind of the things that at least stand out to me about your work, health at every size, diet culture, focus, wellness culture, like what led you down that path? Yeah, I think it was really starting to specialize in eating disorders, which, you know, as I was in graduate school and researching that book on emotional eating, I was like, you know, this is definitely a focus. And of course, now I have a whole different take on emotional, like what emotional eating even is, you know, and Mm -hmm. I think it largely comes from restriction and deprivation and the belief system of diet culture. But at the time, I was just kind of starting to understand that, you know, but I was like, this thing about people's relationships with food is really interesting to me. I know that I want that to be a part of my work in some way. Um, And so when I was doing my dietetic internship, I decided to do a rotation at an eating disorder treatment center. And actually that was at the time when I was just starting my podcast as well. Mm. So like, you know, it was, I had been doing the podcast for maybe six months or something when I started this rotation, maybe a year, I think, um, when I started this rotation. And so it was, you know, very much in line with like the work that I was already doing on the podcast to talk about people's relationships with food and sort of uncover like the disordered histories with food that a lot of us have. Um, and you know, that was, that was very much a driving force for me. I think the, the passion that I had for talking to people about their relationships with food, I knew would be a part of my work as a dietitian in some way. And when I started, um, working with people with eating disorders, it really cemented that for me. Like this is something that I, I, think I could be really good at that I have personal experience with, um, and that I find just kind of endlessly fascinating. So, you know, it it quickly became, um, an area of real interest for me. But then as I was, you know, doing that, um, starting that specialization and going to conferences and learning and, you know, talking with people and doing clinical supervision and stuff, the, concept of health at every size kept coming up again and again. And actually my clinical supervisor, you know, the first one that I worked with was Lisa Pearl, who, um, is, you know, a really kind of seminal figure. And I never knew, you know, I didn't know this when I stumbled into working with her, she just responded when I posted something on a listserv saying I was looking for someone to do supervision with, but she happens to be a dietitian who, um, was really like instrumental in bringing health at every size into the dietetics field for eating disorder recovery. And, um, you know, so that was very much her philosophy from the get go. And I was hearing about health at every size at conferences as well. It was like, you know, just sort of in the zeitgeist that I was in and it all just made so much sense to me right away. It was like, yeah, you know, if we're going to hope to help people recover from disordered eating and eating disorders completely, and if we're going to help people have a sustained recovery and be able to like care for themselves and think about their health in a way that supports their recovery and doesn't just send them tumbling back into more disordered eating or a different form of disordered eating. You know, we need this kind of model that's outside of the weight centric paradigm Mm. and health at every size just made so much sense. And so, you know, very quickly I, I embraced that and started to 
do the work of incorporating it into my work, which was certainly messy, you know, because I started out treating eating disorders um, from the paradigm that I think a lot of us do as healthcare professionals, where it was like, okay, you know, you're going to gain weight to this point and we're not going to let you go above it. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, Mm -hmm. and that colludes very much with the person's eating disorder. And of course that's what, you know, someone who's struggling with an eating disorder and is very scared of becoming, basically becoming stigmatized for their size. Cause that's what it really is, you know, becoming, um, in a larger body that, that then puts them at risk of all this stigma, both internal and external, mm-hmm. you know, of course they're scared. And of course they're like kind of asking and, and pleading with us to know, like, you know, are you not, are you, can you promise you won't make me fat, mm-hmm. you know? And that's like, as a, as a provider, you know, of course, I think a lot of us get sucked into to saying like, oh, of course I won't, you know, like, yeah, we're not going to let that happen to you. But like, that is very much weight stigmatizing, you know, mm-hmm. that's colluding with people's eating disorders, including with the the diet culture mindset that drives eating disorders in the first place. And so I had to really start to unlearn that. And, you know, as I got more and more immersed in health at every size, realized like, oh, wow, some of this early work that I was doing with eating disorders um, was not not actually that helpful, you know, like maybe helped people a part of the way, but actually ultimately sort of kept them stuck in this disordered eating mindset. Um, and so, you know, as I, as I learned more about health at every size, then of course that you pull that thread, right. And you get to, well, what are the systemic roots of all of this stuff? Like, why do we have fat phobia and weight stigma in this culture in the first place? And, you know, that cultural criticism stuff was really fascinating to me and came sort of easily because I was a rhetoric major in college Mm. and rhetoric is basically, you know, cultural criticism and had read a lot actually of stuff that sort of ended up informing certain aspects of the critique of diet culture. And so, you know, it really clicked pretty quickly, like, oh yeah, it's not just a an individual issue. Like we wouldn't have eating disorders in this culture if it weren't for, you know, of course it's biopsychosocial, right? So it's like you have the individual vulnerability that might be, you know, partly biological or genetic. You have the individual psychological factors that happen in someone's life to maybe drive them toward an eating disorder. But very much there's this social component. And for a lot of people, that is the first trigger and also the, um, thing that keeps them stuck. Mm -hmm. And even for people, you know, for the folks I've worked with who those rare people who like stumbled into an eating disorder as a way to manage emotions without any sort of effort to change their body size, it very quickly still got tangled up in diet culture because then it was like either their, you know, the, the behavior that they're using is restriction to try to like numb out their emotions and they're getting praised because their body's getting smaller. And so suddenly they get drawn into diet culture that way, or, you know, they're binging to try to soothe their, their emotions and, that's their, um, kind of method of control and they're getting stigmatized because their body's getting larger. And so they're drawn into diet culture that way and told that they need to shrink themselves. And so really like in any case, you know, nobody is operating in a vacuum with an eating disorder. Nobody with an eating disorder is doing it just for individual reasons. And it very much gets tangled up in this sort of web of diet culture. And I should probably define diet culture and, you know, say what that is. Like, as I've 
gone on and, and, you know, really sort of understanding it, I've come to define it as a system of beliefs that worships thinness as well as muscularity and particular body shapes. So just like certain type of body that gets held up as the, um, you know, barometer of health and moral virtue. And it also, the system of beliefs, you know, promotes weight loss and promotes body reshaping as means of attaining higher status. Because again, you know, weight and body size and, and body shape is equated to health and moral virtue. So if you want to get more health and moral virtue, more, more status in this culture, mm-hmm. you know, it's about changing your body to fit that. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think this is an interesting aspect of diet culture that we're really seeing come to the fore now in the, in the 21st century is like it demonizes certain foods and food components and food groups while elevating others. So, you know, we see that a lot with things like clean eating and whole 30 and quote unquote wellness, you know, that, that certain foods are held up as good and others are demonized as bad. And they're equated to, you know, if you're eating the good foods and you're a good person, you're doing good things. And if you're eating the bad foods, you're a bad person. You need to detox and atone and, you know, absolve yourself of your sins, basically. The religion of dieting. Yes. Yes, exactly. And dieting really does function as a religion in this day and age for a lot of people. You're, yeah, you're talking about a system beliefs that comes with like moral imperatives and it's not questioned, right? Like this is the Mm -hmm. value system. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so like diet culture also oppresses anyone who doesn't meet up with that value system. So I think it's, it really is a system of oppression in the sense that it, it functions to both define who is like good and moral and valuable in the system and sort of tells people like, if you don't meet these criteria, you're out. You, you, as you're describing this, it's not even like when you say status, like you achieve a higher status, you're not even blatantly using the word health, but it seems implied because having so-called quote unquote health is what gives us higher status, right? Totally. Yeah. And I think, you know, it gets the like system of, or the, the way that diet culture has shape shifted in the 21st century is like, it claims to be all about health. You know, it, it goes under this guise of like, well, obviously to be healthy, you need to do these things. Obviously to be healthy, you need to be thin because we have a quote unquote obesity epidemic, you know, and it's just like treated as a foregone conclusion. But actually I've been doing research for my book on like how diet culture has existed and shown up in different points in history and how it even started to exist in the first place, how it came about. And really it's this idea of health is sort of cloaking all of these other ideas that we don't want to talk about, you know, like, Mm. like being thin and being um, a certain particular shape and eating certain kinds of foods, like all of that initially and originally was was born out of racist and misogynistic um, ideas about people's bodies and wow. about like who had value and who had moral virtue and who didn't. Yeah. And it's super messed up. <laughs> so, you know, now I think the, we have these same things that are sort of driving discussion and discourse around um, body size and shape. Like we have this notion of a quote unquote obesity epidemic, which I put in quotation marks because it's not actually real. Like it's, it's an invention. It doesn't really exist. There is no such thing as an obesity epidemic, but it's now this concept that gets used to oppress people who 
look a certain way, who don't match up with this ideal of quote unquote health. And again, it is born out of these like racist and misogynistic and, you know, classist ideas about what is um, acceptable in, in different, you know, people's bodies. How, how can you help our listeners? Cause I mean, this is fringe for like, you know, in the RD community, in the counseling community, like people in this field are still learning about this. How can we help folks who this is totally new information for deal with the cognitive dissonance when you say, you know, obesity epidemic is false and this is a stigmatizing word and it's, it's problematic. Like how do we help folks even start to grasp that? Can you give them something concrete? Yeah, I think it's, it's really, I mean, first of all, I get it. Like it is hard to, um, step outside of the system that we were all steeped in, you know, and we, it's, um, a lot of people use the metaphor of like, it's the water we're swimming in. And so, you know, if you're a fish, you can't actually see the water. You don't know that you're in water. It's just the environment. And so we're all kind of those fish, you know, swimming around in water being like, what, what are you talking about? What is water? Right. Um, and so I think, the first step is just sort of acknowledging that potentially there is another way to see things, even if you don't um, believe it or think that it's kind of wild and out there right now. If you can just like put, you know, put that kind of disbelief on the side for the, for a moment and just say like, okay, yeah, where did my understanding of body size and its relationship to health come from? Like who told me this? How have I learned about this stuff over time? And, you know, none of this is inherent in us from birth, right? We don't, we aren't born with these ideas. We're taught these ideas. We're inculcated with these ideas from this culture that we're living in. And this culture for the last 150 years has been very weight biased, has been very, um, you know, has been diet culture really. And the way that our science gets interpreted, our media interpretations of the science get disseminated. Um, all of that is through the lens of diet culture because we all grow up in it because we're all part of this culture, but there is actually evidence. And I talk about this on my podcast a lot. And there's, I have an introductory episode that I think might be a good, um, start for people who are just like, wait, what, what is all this? Uh, you know, this is sort of blowing my mind. What's the science behind it? have an episode, episode 127 of food psych that kind of gets into like frequently asked questions about intuitive eating and health at every size and what the science behind those, those things actually says. Um, but there is a lot of science behind it and, you know, intuitive eating and health at every size are based very much on the, um, evidence that people's bodies don't actually respond in the long term to dieting and restriction that we can lose weight in the short term. Yes. But over time, if you look at people's body size over like a five year period, um, they're the amount of weight they lost on diets. They almost inevitably regain all of it by the five year period. And oftentimes even more up to two thirds of people who, who lose weight on diets, regain more of it than they lost. And so over time that actually can drive people's weight up. Not that there's anything wrong with higher weights because that is another, you know, false belief that comes from this belief system of diet culture. However, diet culture tells us like, you know, the solution to your supposed problem of larger body size is to shrink your body by dieting and exercising. But the supposed solution that they're selling us is actually doing the opposite as much as two thirds of the time. And, you know, there's some suggestion that it might be even more often because 
a lot of this data that we have, a lot of the evidence, the scientific evidence that we have, tends to be optimistic, tends to be um, much more optimistic than than what might in fact be happening in reality, because a lot of, there's a very high dropout rate in um, studies about diets. And, you know, the, the people who drop out of studies about diets are generally not the people for whom that diet is working. Mm. And so if you have, you know, a hundred people, let's say, um, in a study and your research show, you know, you have like a study that shows that 50 of them, um, lost weight and kept it off long term. It's like, okay, so like that's a 50% success rate, right? But actually it turns out there were 200 people in the study to start and, you know, a hundred of them, of them dropped out because they weren't having any quote unquote success. Mm. And so suddenly your success rate just, you know, supposed success rate just gets, um, slashed. So there is, there is a lot of evidence, um, to show, and this is over decades. This is actually dating back to the 1950s. People started doing research on what is the long-term success rate of treatments for, you know, supposed treatments for larger body size, right? Weight loss treatments. And very like since the 1950s, we have known that the success rate is very small on the order of around 5%. A lot of people think, um, the, the most optimistic researchers suggest that it's, you know, maybe it's up to like 80% of diets fail. Whereas the least optimistic researchers say that like 98, 99% of diets fail. So, you know, the failure rate is astronomical, however you slice it. Um, and for the people who, you know, those, that small percentage of people who do lose weight and keep it off long-term, there's evidence that they're only doing so that a lot, you know, the vast majority of them anyway, seem to be only doing, only keeping the weight off through means that are very disordered and could be actually diagnosed as anorexia if the people had started out in smaller bodies. So, you know, like it's, it's like, is this worth it then? If, if the success rate, the, the supposed success rate is so low to start. And then the people who are these supposed success stories are actually doing it by very, um, self-damaging means. Like what, what does that say about the project of weight loss? And really that doesn't say anything good, you know? And so we also have evidence that, um, weight cycling, which is those pretty inevitable cycles of weight loss and regain that happen when people try to intentionally lose weight, that that is independently associated with, a lot of the health outcomes that tend to get blamed on body size itself and independent of body size. So like, you know, when you control for people's starting BMI, um, it's still the people who weight cycle more are the ones who are more likely to get heart disease, diabetes, um, you know, all the risk factors associated with, associated with those things. And it puts tremendous stress on the body. It's, it's a physical stressor to lose and regain weight. And, not only that, but the stigma associated with being in a larger body weight stigma has also been shown to be a greater risk factor than even what people eat. It's a greater risk factor than diet. So that is kind of bananas when you think about the fact that public health officials and nutritionists and dietitians like push quote unquote healthy eating on people. And they do it with a side order of weight stigma oftentimes by saying like, well, to combat the so-called obesity epidemic, we need to, you know, make people eat healthier food and you'll lose weight if you do this. Right. But that's actually stigmatizing people who are in larger bodies. And so it kind of cancels out and actually is a net negative for their health because, again, weight stigma has been shown to be, you know, have worse effects on people's health than um, diet does. So it's it's pretty 
you know, when you start really looking at the science, it's pretty wild to, to think that we still have people out there pushing weight loss and saying that that's the path to health when there have been decades of evidence showing that the opposite may be true. Yes. The, we're so drenched in this. Just today, I went to a doctor's appointment and walked in. The first thing he said was, have you tried keto? You should do that. You should cut out carbs. Oh. And... Because I have headaches, so, you know, keto. And I said, have you considered how that's contraindicated for someone in recovery? What about, you know, the potential risks? And you should have seen the rage in his eyes when he said, what risks? (gasps) And I, it's everything you just said is what I told him because it's, it's really, it's like this belief system, right? And this moral imperative, like, well, no, a diet's the answer, but the things you're showing, I mean, the research is clear and not just, you know, the stigma and the yo-yo dieting, but then just the shame that we all carry for feeling like personal failures for these diets that are hardwired not to work. It's just, we're, it's a setup. We can't win. Yeah, exactly. We can't win. And yet diet culture conditions us to blame ourselves when we don't. Yes. Even though diets are the real failure. I think you're the one who I've heard use that analogy. Tell us the analogy about like buying like a technology or or a computer if it's failing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's I mean, can you imagine like another product where you would have a 95% failure rate and the the users would blame themselves, you know? So like I'll say often like a cell phone, right? If you bought a cell phone at a store that 95% of the time was going to fail or explode, right? Like hurt you. Um, there would be class action lawsuits, right? There would be, you know, recalls on that product. I mean, same with anything, you know, if you think about like a car, I've been thinking about this metaphor lately because, you know, not only do diets fail at doing what they say they're going to do, but two thirds of the time they do the opposite, right? It's like if you bought a car and you pointed it to the left, you try, you're trying to turn left and two thirds of the time it turned right instead, <laughs> you know, it was like going the opposite direction of where you're trying to make it go. Like that would just not, nobody would stand for that with consumer culture, right? With any other type of product. And yet when it comes to diets, which are products and services, somehow our culture makes it out to be that it's user error, that it's the person who's trying to use it is the one who is the failure and that, you know, they've done something wrong and they need to just diet harder or try a different diet or go back to the one that they, you know, quote unquote fell off of or whatever. When the research is very clear that even if people do the diet quote unquote perfectly and do it over time, their weight is still going to come back to baseline over a course of years. Usually there's the research indicates like a, for, for about a year, people can, you know, maintain their weight loss and stay on a diet. And then after that point, the weight, the speed of, of weight regain speeds up and it, it, um, go increases exponentially. So, you know, that's why by year five for the vast majority of people, they've regained all the weight they lost and it gets harder and harder with each passing year. And there's even evidence like, you know, from clinical evidence from people that I've worked with who were, um, 
you know, those so-called success stories where they lost weight and kept it off for more than five years. You know, some of them, it's like 12 years, 15 years, whatever. But they've said that like over time, it got harder and harder to maintain that weight loss so that their behaviors got more and more disordered. They got further and further into a, a, you know, really hellish relationship with food, um, in the effort to maintain this weight loss that they had. And so even these supposed success stories are really suffering. Yes. And that's the, the fitspo, the people who are suffering with orthorexia, making it like this career and diet culture upholds that, right? Like it's, we've normalized disordered eating. We've normalized all of this, this, this whole system of beliefs and this disordered way of functioning with food. And it just upholds the system. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it really does hold these people up as like, you know, status symbols, right? It's the Instagram influencer who is spreading orthorexic ideas about food and fitness is getting likes and partnerships and, you know, money and success and fame. And like, this is happening all over, you know, with very, and it doesn't, the diets all have sort of a different flavor now. It's like, oh, it's keto. It's a lifestyle. Oh, it's, you know, paleo is a, a template. Uh, Whole30 <laughs> is a plan or a program. You know, they all have these names, right? They're not diet. It's not a diet. It's a program. It's a protocol. It's a template, but like they are all diets just by a different name. And, and their diet culture has become very good at shape shifting into this, you know, supposed wellness or lifestyle form. And so is that, that um, that's a good segue. You know, conveniently in, hides its, its origins. Yeah. Tell, tell us about wellness culture. What's that mean? Oh, sorry. You broke up there for a second. Tell what us. Was that? Sorry. Yeah. You, you mentioned wellness culture and I'm hearing more and more about this. Can you help us understand what that means? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, wellness culture is this sort of, um, new manifestation of diet culture. I actually call it the wellness diet to highlight that it's diet. It's a diet going by another name, going by the name of wellness. And what it is, is this idea that, you know, it's not about dieting. It's about just eating quote unquote real food, or it's not about dieting. It's about, you know, eating clean or eating paleo or eating keto, or, you know, you're doing a whole 30 to like reset your system, not to lose weight. And yeah, you may like shed some weight in the process, quote unquote, but like, that's not even the real point. P.S. It's totally the real point. You know, like (laughs) it's go, it's, it's using the guise of like health and wellness as a convenient deflection and distraction from the fact that it's exactly the same system of beliefs that we've always had driving diet culture. But, um, People know, people are wise to the fact, you know, in general, people know that diets don't work and most of us have tried countless diets, you know, traditional diets that haven't had long-term results. And so, you know, the, the sort of common wisdom is catching up to the fact that diets really don't work, but now diet companies have shape-shifted and morph themselves into this different form saying like, Oh yeah, it's not about it. It's not about dieting. It's about a healthy lifestyle. And like, yeah, we know diets don't work too. So like, we're not even a diet. We're, we're just doing health and it's just the exact same thing under a new name. And it's even more insidious because it's harder to spot. It's harder to sort of, um, distinguish from true, like there's even diets that go by the name of intuitive eating now. You know, they're, they're intuitive eating marketed for weight loss, which is not really intuitive eating. That's right. a, 
just a diet culture twisting of intuitive eating into, into a diet. And so you have to be so savvy these days to, to be able to, um, like save yourself from the pain of falling into yet another diet. And of course, you know, all of us are conditioned also to really think that health and fitness and wellness is an important value that we should hold and that we should pursue that. And so we're going to be coming into contact with all these different diets and like probably considering them, you know, because we think we think we should do do that for our health. Um, so it's really, it's really tricky these days, I think, to, to maintain your recovery and to maintain your, um, intuitive eating skills that we're all born with that, you know, so many of us sadly lose living in diet culture. Yes. It, and the education is so important. This is so new to folks, just even knowing that not dieting is an option and knowing that there's a whole definition mm-hmm. and there's words and verbiage for all of this. I, I would love for you to give us a few more details and it might be helpful for people to know what diet culture is not like, is diet. Oh, sorry. I just dropped, I just lost you again. I think we're, our connection is bad right now, actually. Our connection is um, getting funky. What so was we'll that last part? What is there any way you can help yeah. us define diet culture by telling us what it's not? Oh, yes. So diet culture is not, um, it's not true intuitive eating. So by true intuitive eating, I mean, uh, intuitive eating is the, the connection between our body and our brain that we're all born with. And that has nothing to do with external rules and, um, value systems about body size. So intuitive eating is about being able to honor your body's natural hunger cues, your fullness cues, your satisfaction, your desire for pleasure, um, and to be able to eat any food you want and choose what that is from an authentic place of desire and self-care rather than a place of deprivation and self-control diet culture does to us. That's the, the diet culture point of view. And so intuitive eating as a, you know, as like we practice it as intuitive eating counselors is a way of helping people reconnect with that value, you know, that, that ability that we're all born with, um, through a set of 10 principles. And the first of those principles is to reject the diet mentality. And the diet mentality is not just being on a diet. It's also all those sneaky forms of dieting that we were just talking about, like the wellness stuff, right? The, it's not a diet. It's a lifestyle, lifestyle change stuff. But it's also the the even subtler forms that we probably just grew up around and don't even think about, like um, just watching what you eat, right? Having small mm. portion sizes because you think you should, Um you know, not eating dessert because you think you should, because you you think it's not healthy or, you know, cutting certain things out at certain times, um, you know, or being like, Oh, I want to lose weight for this event. So I'm just not going to eat X, Y, Z, or I'm just not going to, you know, I'm just not going to, you know, I'm going to do this form of exercise or whatever. It's like instrumental use of food and exercise toward with the aim of changing your body in a particular way. And so that, you know, that's what diet culture is. And intuitive eating is not that intuitive eating is a whole different paradigm. They've actually done research, um, looking at, you know, is intuitive eating just like a flexible type of dietary control or is it a totally distinct, 
um, paradigm. And it, in fact, it is a totally distinct paradigm. So flexible dietary control versus rigid dietary control is still on this continuum of diet culture, which says like, you got to watch it. You can't just eat what you want and, you know, food could kill you. So be careful, right? That's the, the belief system of diet culture. And so flexible dietary control is sort of this like light level of watching it. Whereas rigid dietary control is like, you know, what we would think of as disordered eating and, and, you know, significant eating disorders, like the real rigidity with food. Um, but all of that is, is just the same construct. And in fact, research has shown that people do sort of toggle between flexible and rigid dietary control, that there's not like a, you can't just be flexible with dietary control and not slide back into the rigid part of the spectrum versus intuitive eating. You're not sliding on that on that pole at all because you're on a totally different plane. Like intuitive eating is just a completely different thing. I love that you describe that as a continuum or spectrum because I think people could be confused. Well, if I'm not doing like something that's really blatant, like slim fast or South beach, I might be fine. Right. But all those sneaky diet rules and that diet mentality falls on that spectrum that keeps us sucked into diet culture. So I think that's really important to recognize. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, you know, when I work with people on intuitive eating, that's like such a huge part of our work is like uncovering those sneaky little diet rules. Cause you know, even people who are like, I'm so ready to be done with dieting and I'm not dieting anymore. I've given it up, but I want to know what to do now. They come in and it's like, okay, but have you really, let's look at like whether you've entirely given it up. What are you still believing about food? What are you still doing with food on a day-to-day basis? And, you know, through sort of like getting at those questions and like teasing apart, okay, why did I make that choice? It's like, oh, wow, there's this unconscious diet rule that I didn't even realize I was still following, you know? Yeah. I had a client who was in therapy late at night and I heard her stomach rumble. I said, oh, are you hungry? She's like, yeah, but I can't eat. I said, well, what's up? She said, well, it's past 8 (laughs) p.m. And Oprah said, I can't eat past 8 (laughs) p.m. And I thought, oh my God, that's how deep it runs, right? Like we don't question it. It's a rule. It's this Mm -hmm. like moral fact, universal fact, particularly, you know, Oprah says it, let it be. And I think that's (laughs) that's hard work. And I hope listeners have compassion for we're in the water, as you said, right? Mm -hmm. And it's hard to see that. And this, this is a process. It's a journey and it takes time to really figure out our own individual level of on that continuum. It really does. And it did for me too, you know, and it's, it's like, we're all in it all the time. We're all living in diet culture. So I think just becoming aware is a huge first step and, and then doing that work of like starting to question, Oh, why am I doing this? What, what was that choice about? You know, we can do it from a place of self-compassion, like you said, cause I think, you know, sometimes we get down on ourselves for like, Oh God, I'm doing this now. I'm, I'm mad at myself for doing this dieting thing, you know, but like that doesn't really serve us either to be angry at ourselves for it. I think it's, it's much, um, and actually there's research on this too, that, you know, self-compassion is a much better strategy for healing your relationship with food and your body and also like a million other things in life, um, than, you know, beating yourself up about it. Yes. So you've really um, broken down, you know, diet culture as this system of oppression and how it's kind of morphed into this wellness culture, just super sneaky. Help us understand and kind of define health at every size, how that can help us, how that's a, a new paradigm for people. Yeah. So health at every size is basically the antidote to diet culture within healthcare. 
it's a, it's a, you know, it was born out of, um, a collaboration between dietitians and therapists and the fat acceptance movement in the seventies, you know, dietitians and therapists who, who are sympathetic to the fat acceptance cause and started to learn about weight stigma and, you know, the, the failure rate of dieting and the things that people in larger bodies have had to go through in our society. Um, and, and started to say like, we need to develop another way for us in healthcare to address people's health concerns without forcing them onto diets or, um, making it about weight loss. And so health at every size has, um, you know, these, these principles, these guiding values of, um, helping destigmatize weight and helping people be resilient towards weight stigma, um, helping improve their health on all kinds of, you know, basically any other measure you can think of that doesn't have anything to do with weight and making health not, not be a moral value, you know, not be like health is not a moral obligation in the, in the view of health at every size. Um, health is something that people can choose to pursue if they want to pursue it. And if it's a value that they hold, but also, you know, beating yourself up for not being healthy is not helpful, is not serving you. And, um, that's just another aspect of diet culture's oppressive system of beliefs. And so we really want to help people move away from that healthist system and recognize that like we all have challenges. We all have unique, um, you know, genetic things that we were born with predispositions and things that we're going to have, you know, I myself live with chronic illness. I have Hashimoto's thyroiditis. I have a, another hormonal condition and, you know, I manage them through medication and, other self-care behaviors like, um, getting sleep and making sure that I, um, you know, have some, have plenty of downtime that I go to the doctor, um, you know, all of these different things. Right. So it's not just about food and movement. In fact, many things in our culture, the, the solution is not food and movement, you know, even uh, but diet culture likes to make it out to be yeah. that food is the be all end all, right? Like food is medicine, that belief. Um, and in reality, there's actually research showing that food and, and exercise choices only make up about 10% of, of people's health outcomes on the population level and other health behaviors that, you know, controllable behaviors, um, only make up another 20% of those health outcomes and the rest, the, the 80% that's, or the, the, uh, whatever it is, <laughs> math, uh, 70% that's left of the pie is really things like social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people's socioeconomic status, yeah. their experiences of stigma in the world, right. Which can involve weight stigma, which, detracts from people's health, but also stigmatization based on race or class or, um, sexual orientation or, or gender identity, all these other things that, um, you know, forms of stigma that people can face, um, you know, environmental access to, um, clean water, clean air, things like that. Also access to healthcare, affordable and, um, compassionate healthcare. That's not stigmatizing people. Like all of those things actually make up a much larger piece of the pie than our individual health behaviors. And of that smaller, you know, piece that is made up by individual health behaviors, a very tiny sliver is made up actually by food and exercise. Mm. So I think we, you know, our culture really has it backwards in terms of how it thinks about these things. And, and, we really have to make a lot of changes on a socio uh, sociocultural level um, to help people's health, not just put it all up to individual responsibility and specifically to food and movement choices, because that is just such a tiny piece of the puzzle. Right. I, in my own work, I've seen people 
fairly easily buy into fighting diet culture and understanding, you know, diets don't work and wellness culture is problematic. But when I talk about health at every size, I get a lot of kickback and people Mm. are defensive and I I catch a lot of myths. So can you kind of speak to some of the myths that come up and assumptions people make about health at every size? Yeah, I think that's, that's great point. And the first sort of myth or assumption I think people make is that health at every size means you're automatically healthy at any size that you are, which is not true. Like that's not what health at every size says or means. Health at every size means that whatever size you are, we have evidence-based healthcare that can help you, um, you know, feel better at that, at whatever size you are without bringing weight loss into the picture. So like, you know, if you're someone in a larger body in the, in the BMI category, that's, te- that, you know, is called quote unquote obese, which I always use in quotation marks because it's a stigmatizing term. Um, but if you're someone in that BMI category and you have knee pain, for example, a health at every size approach to knee pain is not like, let's lose weight to take pressure off your knees, which like PS isn't even a thing. Um, it, the, the health at every size approach is what you would do for also a thin person who had knee problems which is to say like, all right, let's like, you know, do a scan of your knee and find out what's actually going on in the structure of your knee. Let's do physical therapy. Let's do, you know, if you need to um, have particular stretching and strengthening, if you need to have a brace, if you need um, surgery, if you need to ice it, like whatever it is, you know, that there's evidence-based healthcare that can deal with the same problem in a larger bodied person as in a smaller bodied person without ever having to bring weight loss or weight, um, recommendations into the mix. And so, you know, that's one aspect of health at every size, but the the other piece is like, you know, saying that like, Oh, I'm automatically healthy at the size I am now. If you're like emaciated from an eating disorder, that's not true. You know, the, the, like, it's not like, Oh, I'm, I'm health, like health at every size. So therefore my body's fine. Like actually it's not about the weight. It's about the behaviors and health at every size is about, you know, again, behaviors are such a small piece of the pie for health anyway, but to the extent that we can control our, our health behaviors, we look at what can I do to, to improve my health? What can I, what behaviors can I engage in to support my well being? And eating disorders and disordered eating are the opposite of behaviors that support your well-being. They're behaviors that are harmful no matter what your size is, and they're behaviors that are going to take you farther away from health no matter your size. And so if you're engaging in disordered eating behaviors and that's why you're in a smaller body, that's why you're in, you know, the body size considered quote unquote underweight, um, you know, that's, you're not automatically healthy at that size because you're engaging in the disordered behaviors. And so, you know, the solution to that is recovering from the disordered eating behaviors and letting your body size adjust to where it's going to be, which is, you know, for, I would say probably close to a hundred percent of people is going to mean gaining weight from that suppressed state that you're at when you're using the disordered behaviors. What a powerful question that alone, just asking, what would I recommend to a person in a smaller body or a thin body? I mean, that would revolutionize our healthcare system. It really would. It really would. And, you know, that is something that um, health at every size advocates like Reagan Chastain, who is a woman in a larger body who does um, amazing work on health at every size, um, has this great uh, checklist of like what to say to the doctor. And she always recommends saying like, what would you tell a thin person with the same condition? You know, if you go, if you're someone in a larger body and you go in for something and they say lose weight and, you know, her example, this like ridiculous thing that happened to her was that she had strep throat and went to the doctor and said, 
you know, help me out. I have strep throat or I think, you know, my throat is really sore. Can you help me? And the doctor advised weight loss. And wow. which is just like, what? Like, excuse me? Thankfully, she's very outspoken and, and is able to like stand up to authority figures and stand up to doctors and was able to advocate for herself and get the antibiotics she needed because she indeed had strep throat. Right. But like, can you imagine, you know, like, and there are other stories of people who, you know, have like lung cancer or, um, you know, infections and things like that, that, that don't get treated. And that unfortunately sometimes even cost them their lives Mm. because the doctors are so focused and fixated on their weight that they're missing these obvious symptoms that if it was someone in a smaller body who came in with the same symptoms, they would probably catch. Yes. And for folks who are resistant or defensive or get into shame when they hear the word thin privilege, I mean, this is, this is the best thing to ask. Have you ever been told that you needed to lose weight? in a doctor's mm-hmm. office because that's thin privilege if you haven't. Exactly. Yes. And thin privilege doesn't mean, well, A, one thing that I've heard people say when I, I use the term thin privilege is like, are you saying that it's better to be thin? No, that's not at all what I'm saying. That's not all what thin privilege means. You know, it's thin privilege is like just the reality that exists in our culture right now that thin bodies have access to better care across the board, basically. Right. Um, than, than larger body, you know, people in larger bodies, like thin folks can, and, you know, people with thin privilege aren't necessarily even what society would consider thin. Like it's not, it doesn't mean you're like model thin. It just means you can shop in mainstream clothing stores. You don't have to go to exclusively plus size stores. Um, you can fit into airplane seats. You can fit into theater seats. You don't have to, you know, have special accommodations, um, for your body size in any way. And nobody is, shaming you for your body size in any way. Right. And I've, I've had a lot of folks in thinner bodies say, yeah, but because I was on this end of thinness, I was bullied for that. Or people accuse me of having eating disorders. And so that doesn't, we're not saying that that's not valid. Right. And we're not saying that people in all body shapes don't, don't experience their own type of body image issues or bullying, but yeah, thin privileges totally. separate from that. Yeah. Thin privilege is separate from that. Cause like, even if you're getting bullied for your size because people are saying you're too thin, which sucks and shouldn't happen, you know, um, you're still having these, this sort of institutional access that thin bodies are afforded in our culture. Like you are still able to fit into an airplane seat. You are still able to go to the doctor and have them not tell you to lose weight, you know, like stuff like that. So right. yeah, it's a, it's a different thing, but of course, you know, everyone across the size spectrum in this culture has body image issues and has some, you know, internalized weight stigma usually because we live in diet culture because of the system of beliefs that holds up again, smaller bodies as being supposedly more worthy and makes weight loss supposedly a way to attain higher status. You know, we get, we get it all in our heads that like smaller is better and that, you know, our bodies are too large and are a problem to be fixed. And so no matter what size you are, you can struggle with those beliefs. Absolutely. Are there any uh, kind of like final major myths or facts or, uh, you know, education points that you think would be important for folks to learn as an introductory? Yeah, I think, you know, the idea, some people push back on health at every size um, with this idea that it's quote unquote promoting obesity, right? Then, you know, again, obesity in quotes, because it's like, that's not, you know, that's a very stigmatizing term, A. And B, the the evidence is there that people can be in larger bodies and be 
perfectly well and healthy. Not that like health is a barometer of worthiness by any means. And if you're in a larger body and not in good health and you have chronic health conditions, you're also worthy of respect and love and care and compassionate healthcare, just like anyone else. And so, you know, health at every size is not about saying you're okay to be fat only if you're healthy. That's not what it is at all. You know, it's about saying like we have evidence-based healthcare to provide to people of all sizes, should they choose to pursue it or should they be able to pursue it? Because, you know, the reality of living in our healthcare system in in the U.S. anyway is that it's a for-profit industry and that not everybody can afford healthcare or health insurance. And so a lot of people don't even have access to the appropriate care that they need and deserve. So there's a lot that goes into this idea of health at every size. You know, it sounds, it's this like one little blurb, but there's so much, there's so much behind it, right? What does health even mean? Um, what does, you know, every size mean and and who is this for? And really it is for everybody at all sizes. There's no size limit to health at every size. It's not like only up to a certain point and then you don't deserve it anymore. No, it's right. every size. It's every age as well. I had someone ask on the podcast recently a question about like, you know, I'm in my fifties and my doctor is saying all this stuff about my cholesterol, blah, blah, blah. Is it like, have I just aged out of the time when health at every size could apply to me? And it's like, mm. nope, also no, like it's for every age. It's for every size. It's for every ethnicity and gender identity and sexual orientation and all of it. It's for everybody. And, you know, not every healthcare provider who practices health at every size does it perfectly all the time, right? There's, there's been learning curves and growth in the health at every size movement in terms of being more inclusive of people who have chronic illness, of people Mm -hmm. of, you know, different gender identities and, and, you know, people of color and stuff like that, where there's, there's had to be, you know, by, I think just sort of the nature of the movement, which started with a lot of dietitians and therapists who were disproportionately white and cisgender female, you know, there, there had to be a lot of, um, opening up to inclusivity Yes, that's happened over time. But just because, you know, you might encounter someone who is interpreting health at every size in like a less inclusive way or who doesn't get it on a certain, um, aspect of identity doesn't mean that health at every size isn't for you. It just means that maybe you haven't found a provider who is fully educated on that stuff. And if you choose to, you can try to educate them or you can look for someone who is more educated already on these things and, you know, more able to be inclusive, but yeah, health at every size is for everyone. And, and on this question of, you know, sort of got off topic for the first myth that I was busting, but, um, you know, this idea of quote unquote promoting obesity, um, the, the reality is that actually, stigmatizing people for their size and forcing people in larger bodies to shrink themselves is actually much more harmful to people's health than just staying at a, at a stable weight. And, um, you know, the idea of promoting this, like promoting being in a larger body as being a a bad thing or problematic thing really comes from diet culture. And I think we need to look at what, what that, you know, what makes us think that that's a bad thing. Um, and, the reality is people in larger bodies have been so stigmatized in this culture for so long that they could use some promoting, they could use some uplifting, you know, they could use people saying like, Hey, these, these folks are worthy and valuable and deserving of respect and beautiful and kind and smart and like everything that human beings are, you know, and they're also flawed and human and like, just, you know, they have, they're, they're full human beings with, with, 
real value and worth and we need to stop stigmatizing them. Like if we could get that message out there, if, if folks in all size bodies could start communicating that and spreading that, I think the world would be a much happier place. And I think folks in larger bodies, you would see a lot of, um, better, you know, well-being among, among that group of people, because it doesn't help anyone to be stigmatized and it does actually help people's health to be respected and given the compassion they deserve. I mean, can you imagine a world where we don't have to say this, where we don't have to argue for people's dignity and body autonomy? I know it's, it's almost like beyond imagination, but it's so beautiful. Like I, I hope we can get there. Maybe not in our lifetime, but you know, if enough of us keep fighting and keep doing this work, I think maybe in, in our kids or grandkids lifetime, you know? Thanks for changing the game. Seriously. You are, Thank you. You're, you're in the trenches doing this professionally and talking to people. You've been doing this for years. You're a leader in the field. You've inspired me. So, and this episode is incredible. Like we can, we can send people to this and they can hear so much from you. So thank you for generously sharing your knowledge. Thank you so much for having me. It's really lovely to talk with you. Let's tell folks where they can get more Christy Harrison and her brilliance. You talked about Food Psych, episode 127, as kind of an intro FAQ. Where can they get your your podcast and all those episodes? Yeah, so they can find Food Psych really wherever they get their podcasts, wherever they're listening to this. If you just go or if you just Google search whatever and put in the search bar, um, Food Psych, which is spelled F O O D space P S Y C H, it should come up. Um, you can also go to my website, christyharrison.com, and Food Psych has a page there, christyharrison.com slash food psych, or just click on the little podcast tab at the top of the homepage. Um, you can learn more about the podcast there. And you can also learn more about all of my work and my forthcoming book and uh, read my blog and and work with me and all the things I do. Join my online courses at christyharrison.com as well. Oh, you have a killer intuitive eating course. It's in-depth and has these modules with all this access to your you know previous podcast and it's all organized. It, it has my full 100% like endorsement. I love that course. Oh, thank you so much. That means a lot to me. It's, it's my baby. It's like something I love doing and yeah, working on a, an update to it too, to add even more stuff. So it's exciting. Awesome. Very, very worth the investment for folks wanting to individualize their intuitive eating work and go deep. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, my friend. Thanks so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate you tuning in and supporting the Therapy Thoughts podcast. If you want to dive deeper into intuitive eating and body image and self-love, head over to tiffanyrow.com. It's the hub of all of my courses, the podcast, my merch, and information about doing counseling and coaching with me. I hope you guys stick around for more. We have lots of exciting interviews and thought leaders coming onto the podcast. So until next time, may you be well.